Um, if you didn't know, we are in the, a series where we are slowly, slowly going through the gospel of Mark. We started this in January. We're going all the way through Easter. Um, so man, thank you so much for being part of this journey with us as we just dig in a little bit deeper and sit with these passages just a little bit longer instead of kind of bouncing around. Man, being able to see the life of Jesus so that we get to know him more so we can become more and more like him. But as we've been saying, like we only have a few minutes here on a Sunday. So uh, even though I say we go through the gospel of Mark pretty slow, we actually go pretty quick on a Sunday morning. We cover a lot. And so one of the ways that we try to go slow is throughout the week, we are intentionally, as a church family, we are intentionally digging into the gospel of Mark on our own, on our own time, but also sitting with it a little longer. So if you have not been able to opt into our Bible reading plan through the gospel of Mark, uh, here's how you do that. You can go ahead and do it right now. Get your phone, text Bible to that number, 706-903-9099. And what'll happen is you'll get a text message on Monday and it'll give you one, maybe two chapters to read as we kind of follow through our plan here. And the goal, as we've been saying, is not hurry up and read the passage so you're done for the week. The goal is to read the passage on Monday, reread it on Tuesday, reread it throughout the rest of the week. So you're sitting in the same scripture, the same passage multiple days, and then on Sunday, we uh, jump into something new. Uh, then right at your seat, there's a QR code that says scan me. We send out an email every Tuesday. We call it like our going deeper discussion guide. So it takes what we were talking about here. And in addition to what you're studying and reading on your own, it allows you to dig just a little bit deeper, ask some questions. You can use this on your own for your own quiet time with God. Or maybe this is a great chance to do a Bible study with some other people within your home or, man, friends, family, neighbors, church community, a great opportunity for that. So as we go through, like I said, today's going to be a little bit quicker, uh, but hopefully you slow down as you go through uh, this time on, uh, the time on your own. So here's what I need you to do. Go to Mark chapter 6. This will be more helpful if you have a physical Bible. I'm not anti-technology. You're welcome to use an app, an iPad phone or whatever. If you have like a screen you're using, you're gonna be scrolling a lot today. Totally okay, but just know that going into it. So if you have a physical Bible, here's what I want us to see. We're gonna look at literally all of chapter six. We are not gonna study all of chapter six, but I do want you to see what's happening throughout this, this section. The reason why, and we've seen this, uh, the, the gospel writer here, John Mark, what Mark is doing, there's a couple things that kind of set him as an author apart from the other gospel writers. One of them is he likes to group things together. And we've seen that. He groups these teachings together. He groups these miracles together. He groups these parables together. And here we're gonna see him group a bunch of moments, what we might even call like ministry moments where Jesus and his disciples are doing a lot of different things. He shoves all these together and we're gonna see how it almost feels like he's building and building and building because Jesus is gonna do this and then he's gonna do that and then his disciples do this and then this happens. Like It feels like the writer here, Mark, is really trying to build up what is happening in Jesus his life and in this season. So here's what we're going to do. I want you to think of this as, as almost like headlines from a newspaper. That's what we're going to do. We're just going to see the headlines from a newspaper, kind of, and I want you to, as we're talking about these headlines, be thinking, what is a word that would describe the season that Jesus is in? Does that question make sense? As we talk about all these different newspaper headings, what word would you say, ah, this word describes what is happening in this section. This word would describe all of these headlines and all of these moments 
that Jesus is walking through and personally experiencing. So I want you to be thinking of what that word could be. I'm gonna go through these headlines really, really fast. So at the very beginning of chapter six, and again, you, if you've got a physical Bible, you even see some of these headings, we see that Jesus is going back to his hometown. Jesus has done teaching and he's been traveling and he's been doing incredible things, but he goes back to his hometown and he does not get the welcome that we might hope or expect him to have. I'm just gonna read verse three. Again, you can read on your own. We're gonna go through these headlines pretty quick. Mark 6, chapter six, verse three. Then they, talking about his hometown, the people he grew up with, then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. Like, what Jesus is saying, what he's talking about, and we've talked about this a lot, the ultimate authority and the ultimate power of Jesus where he's claiming to be Messiah. He's claiming to be the son of God, fully God, fully man. And so he comes home and he begins to preach that message. And they're like, nah, 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 I remember you when you were a kid and I grew up with you and, and your brothers are here, your sisters are right here. Like we know your mom, like there's no way you could be the son of God the promised Messiah. If you keep reading the end of verse three, it says that they were deeply offended and refused to believe him. They didn't just not believe him, they were offended. Like, Jesus, how dare you even proclaim this? How dare you even say this? So right here in the beginning of all of these different headlines, we have the rejection of Jesus. We have his hometown, the people he grew up with, they refused to believe him and they were even offended. And then we see, we move on to the next headline where now Jesus is traveling around from village to village. Verse six tells us that then Jesus went from village to village teaching the people. Now we, re we read that very quickly. Oh, that's great. He traveled around and he taught. Put this in context in the culture. When Jesus was traveling from town to town, how was he getting from one town to the other? To the other? He would have been walking. So that's a lot of movement. That's a lot of traveling and there's exhaustion there and he's teaching. But what we see then next is this next headline. It's not just teaching other people. It's not just teaching at this town and then this town and then this town. We actually see a shift of what Jesus does with his followers, his disciples. Up until this point, his disciples were great followers and great observers. They were following Jesus wherever he went. They were right there following him. They were observing wow, look at the miracle Jesus did here. Oh, look at the teaching that Jesus spoke here. They were following and they were observing, but now Jesus is gonna shift that in verse seven. Jesus then, he called his 12 disciples together and began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. He told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. So now Jesus has shifted, not just teaching other people, and not just having his disciples follow him and observe him, he's now training, training his disciples to do what he does. He's training them to cast out demons. He's training them to teach and speak. He's teaching them to share the gospel, the good news. That's why Jesus came. That was in Mark chapter one. I've come to call you to repentance because the kingdom of God is near. He's teaching them and training his disciples to now go. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation or maybe a work environment where you've had to train someone else. Parents, that's like your entire job is training these little kids to become hopefully like citizens and like helping people and, and mature 
Like, I know that feels like a lawfully dream, but I mean, that's the goal, right? We train them to become productive citizens in our world and culture. And so if you've ever been in a training environment, at some point, you probably think, you probably don't, you might say it, you shouldn't say it, but you at least think, it's just easier if I do it. It's just so much, just, you know what? Forget it. You just sit here. I'm just going to do it. It's be a whole lot easier when we try to teach our kids to do dishes and laundry and like vacuum and sweep the floor. At some point, it's like, what are you thinking? Like, give me the broom. I'll just do it. Right? So we don't know. Jesus is a whole lot holier than we could ever be, obviously. So we don't know that per se, but for Jesus to shift from watch me to now you do it, oh, that's a different thing. And we see that as a headline, if you will, where Jesus is not just teaching, he's now training people, training his disciples to go and do what he does. And then we get this very long section. If you're opening it up in your Bible, you see it feels like half the chapter. We have this long section where then the gospel writer Mark tells us a lot of details surrounding the death of John the Baptist. He was executed. He was calling out the, the sin and, and other people. There's a whole other story there. I don't have time to get into it today, but read it on your own. Email me. I'd love to talk with you if you want to know more, uh, more details about it. But Mark spends a lot of time giving the details and the behind the scenes on the execution of John the Baptist. What I want us to pay attention to is that John the Baptist was executed. And if you know anything about John the Baptist, there's kind of two ways that he and Jesus related. One was, that was what you would call like coworkers, pretty much. Like John the Baptist was paving the way for Jesus. And then Jesus came and like picked up where John had left off. So they were coworkers in a sense, both doing ministry, both of them calling people to repentance, but they weren't just relating in a, in a spiritual mindset or in a kingdom sense of the word. They were actually relatives. They were related. And so here we get this long section where, where John the Baptist, a, a relative of Jesus, but also a coworker of Jesus, is executed for doing what God had called him to do. And there has to be grief and sorrow. Anytime you lose someone, especially one that's so close, there's grief and sorrow associated with it. But right on the heels of John the Baptist, his execution, then we get another headline. Verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all that they had done and taught. This is incredible. We did this and we saw that and this happened. I mean, think of all the life change and all the miracles and all the lessons that they were able to share with Jesus. Verse 31, then Jesus said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. Like with all these headlines, do you, are, you, are you tired just listening to them all? Like it's a lot. He says, we need to go away and rest. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. They are teaching this and he's training them for that and he's sending them out and he's going from village to village and he's dealing with the emotions of rejection at his own hometown and now he's gotta deal with the, the grief and the sorrow of losing John the Baptist, and now the disciples come back and Jesus, all this is going on and he's trying to listen to them, but then there's all these other people that need and want Jesus. He's like, guys, we gotta get away. So his plan was to then, let's get in a boat, let's go to the other side of the lake. It's more remote on that other side. There's not towns and villages. People don't really live on the other side. And let's get away from these people just for a little bit because we need to rest. They are so busy, so exhausted. They haven't had time to eat or rest. Here's the next headline, verse 32. So they left by boat for a quiet place. They went to the other side of the lake where they could be alone. But many people recognized them and saw them leaving and people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. I need you to just picture this scene, 
right? So Jesus is there ministering to people, healing people, teaching people. The disciples show up after their ministry tour and they're trying to tell Jesus all the great things that they saw and they experienced. And it's a lot, there's a lot going on. And so Jesus says, time out, let's get in the boat. Let's go to the other side. Let's leave these people here. We'll come back, but let's leave them for a second. We need a break. We need a breather. We need some rest. And no one lives over there. Let's go. So they get in this boat and they start crossing to the other side of the lake. And then the entire crowd watches them get in the boat to leave. And they're like, hey, they're leaving. They're going to the other side. Let's go. So then they all get by foot. They run around. I mean, I'm just picturing this like the disciples and Jesus just ready to breathe. They're like in the boat. Oh, we have needed this. We are so ready for a break. We needed a vacation. And they're going. And then all these people are just hoofing it. They're just running all the, around, all the way around the other side to the point where they beat Jesus and the disciples. Can you imagine Jesus and the disciples getting off the boat? Oh, you again. How did you get here? Read the room. Take a hint. We left you there to no man's land over here. Why are you still here? Like that's what's happening. They're so exhausted. They just want to get away. Verse 34. Here's the headline. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat and he had what? He had compassion. Are you kidding me? He had compassion on them because as he would describe, they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. We're not going to hang out here long, but I want to point out just a couple things. First of all, uh, this is how I know that God's not done yet with me. This is how I know that the Holy Spirit still has a lot of work to do in my own heart and in my own growth. The church word for that is sanctify, to become more and more holy, to become more and more like Jesus. And I know that's true in my life because if I were to be one of the disciples where I am exhausted and I'm tired and I've been looking forward to getting away and then a bunch of people showed up where I was supposed to have some alone time, compassion is not the word I'm thinking of at all. Right, and you could play this. I mean, this gets very real in our own environments. I mean, this could be a picture of your home. I just was trying to get away for a second, right? You don't have to show your hands. You ever locked yourself in the bathroom before? Not because you had to go to the bathroom, because you needed to get away. And then dad, dad, mom, mom, right? You're like, I just need a minute. I'm gonna go get in the car. I'm gonna go for a drive, but I have nowhere to go. I'm gonna go for a walk far, far away. I, like we try to get away and then people still need us. And I'm telling you, compassion's not my response. Frustration, maybe a little bit of bitterness, definitely annoyance, maybe anger at some point. Compassion's not one of my responses when I'm tired and hungry and ready for a break, but it was for Jesus. His response was compassion. Now, if you've been with me long enough, you know what's coming. There's a word here. That's my favorite, every pastor has a favorite Greek word. You all need a favorite Greek word too. But this is my favorite. I've got a lot of favorites. This is the favorite. Anybody remember the word, the Greek word? Yeah, he's got it. Yes, splagnizomai. Come on, I know you want to practice. I know you want to say it. Say it with me. Splagnizomai. Yeah, front row, watch out for this word. Splagnizomai. It's such a good word because the literal meaning of splagnizomai, we translate it compassion. The literal word means the innermost bowels. Yeah, intestines. So Jesus' response when he got off the boat and saw these other people, his inner bowels moved. We lose a little in translation, don't we? <laughs> yeah. Here's the reason though. Here's why splagnizomai fits here. Because Jesus, when he saw the crowd, it wasn't like, oh, I feel bad for them. Anyway, 
It wasn't a, oh, I have pity for them. Oh, that's too bad. Oh, bless your heart. Like, it's not that. He had splagnizomai. And he was moved. Like, you know, you get that pit. You know, you get that feeling in your stomach. You're like, oh, I just have to do, I can't stand this. I have to do something. That's what this means. Jesus saw the crowd in the midst of all that's going on. And he's like, I've got splagnizomai. And it forces me. It requires me to act. It requires me to do something. I can't just sit by. I can't just see you and move on. I cannot ignore this. That's what compassion means. It's not kind, it's not niceness, it's not being polite, it's not having pity. It is being so moved in your gut, you cannot help but respond. That's what Jesus responds with. Notice though, oftentimes when we think of Jesus' compassion, we think of his love and his grace and his forgiveness and his kindness and his goodness, and all those are true. But did you catch what his compassion, his splagnizomai actually moved him to do? Did you catch it? Teach. He had compassion on them. He viewed them as a sheep without a shepherd. So here's his response. Anytime there's true compassion, it is followed by an action. He began to teach them many things. That's where his compassion moved him. These are sheep without a shepherd. I need to teach them the truth. I need them to know who I am. I need them to know about the kingdom of God. And so he begins to teach them. Now that compassion is gonna move into service and sacrifice, but it begins with teaching. And then we get the last headline we're gonna look at before we really dig dig in. Verse 35, so late in the afternoon, he's teaching all these people now, even though they're tired and even though they haven't eaten. And remember, they're in a remote place because they were trying to get away from people and those people followed them to the remote place. Late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place because we tried to get away, but then everybody followed us here, and it's already getting late. Jesus sent the crowds away so that they can go to nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat, verse 37, but Jesus said, no, you feed them. You're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Jesus, we are tired, we are exhausted, like look at all that we've gone, gone through. You want us to feed over 5,000 people? Keep reading in, in, your, in your Bible and you'll see that this is what we then refer to as the feeding of the 5,000, one of the most famous miracles. You don't even have to be a Christian to know about this miracle, right? The loaves and the fish and what Jesus does. But it begins with a crowd in a remote place and everybody's tired. The disciples wanna just send people away because we can finally get some quiet time. And Jesus says, no, 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 we're not done. We're gonna feed them. All right, so those are the headlines, right? We went through a lot very quickly. Do you notice how Mark seems to be building all these up? The rejection at his hometown and then village to village walking and teaching. And then he's gonna train his disciples and send them out. And then we have this long section where John the Baptist's execution is described. So we have the grief and sorrow of Jesus, a coworker, but also a friend and even a relative. And then you get the disciples that are coming back and everybody coming and going and everybody needing Jesus. They try to get away, but then they can't. And then he has compassion. So he teaches them some more. And he doesn't just teach them the more. Now he's gotta feed all of them like, I'm stressed just talking about it. Like that's a lot. If I were to put some words to this, let me put this up on the screen for you. Here's the words, here's the headlines that I would put in. Jesus was in a season of and dealing with rejection and conflict. And right after rejection and conflict, he was traveling around and teaching. He was leading his disciples and also training them. He experienced grief and sorrow at the execution of John the Baptist. He was busy and he was exhausted but he still dealt with interruptions and continued to serve. Now with those all up there, leave those up there for a second. I wonder if there is one word that could like encapsulate encapsulate all of these. Here's the word I came up with. You might have something different. 
intensity. Like that's the word I think of. Like just going through these, again, if we called them headlines of what Jesus was going through and then putting some of those words up on the screen, it's just intense. It's just a lot. There's a lot going on and there's a lot that Jesus is dealing with and it feels extremely intense. I feel like if we were to, to call out and think through what are the major stressors we deal with in life, like if you were sitting down with a counselor or a therapist, they have, they have kind of this checklist in their minds of what are some major things that cause stress and rightfully so. Moving, right? Conflict, rejection by those that you grew up with. Dealing with the death or the loss of a loved one. Needing rest, not getting rest. Not eating. Constantly serving, dealing with inter- I mean, I just feel like the counselor's like, check, 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 check. Like, you're stressed and exhausted. And Jesus is like, yep. His disciples are like, oh yeah. And in the midst of all of that, I wanted you to see the context. Because if we just read what we're going to study today, you would miss a whole lot based on, on not seeing all of it. So here's where we're going to actually land. Here's where we're going to actually see it. So after all of that, verse 45. Immediately after this, talking about the feeding of the 5,000, immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and head across the lake to Bethsaida. When, while he sent the people home, finally, like send them home, verse 46. After telling everyone goodbye, look at this, not even a full sentence here. He went up into the hills by himself to what? to pray. This is an intense season for Jesus and his disciples. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of movement. They are hungry. They are tired of doing the good, a lot of good things. They've experienced grief along the way and sorrow. They're dealing with tensions and conflicts. Oh, it is intense. It is busy. They are exhausted. And then we get this one line where we're told that Jesus went up into the hills by himself to pray. One of the other aspects of the writer here, uh, John Mark, I mentioned one, how he groups things together. One of the other aspects that is very specific to Mark as a gospel writer here is his, his highlighting of action words. Like if you were to go through all of the gospel of Mark and just highlight all the action words, there's, they're all over the place, more so than any other gospel. Words like immediately, and afterwards, the word then is everywhere. And it does that intentionally because Mark is focusing on the actions of Jesus. For example, the gospel of Matthew, the writer there, Matthew is focusing on the teachings of Jesus. You're gonna see a whole lot more of Jesus' teachings in Matthew than you do Mark. But Mark is focusing on the actions. And then this happened, and then immediately that. And you wouldn't believe it afterwards, then this. And then they went here, and then this happened, and then he went over there, and then he called it. Like, it's just this one long, and then, and then, and then, and then, and it just builds. The picture that Mark is trying to portray of Jesus is a Jesus on the move, a Jesus of action. That Jesus is going somewhere with a purpose and a plan. He's doing something, he's going somewhere, and he's calling other people to come with him. When, when Mark talks about come and follow me, it's come and follow me because we have work to do. It's, there's a sense of urgency and immediacy in Mark's language here. The picture of a rabbi that is sitting around discussing theology is not the picture we have of Jesus in the gospel of Mark. Yes, he's a rabbi, he's a teacher, but he's moving with intentionality, with a plan on his way somewhere. And we know where that story ends. 
but he wants his readers to see Jesus on the move, which is fascinating that he highlights prayer in the midst of all of this movement. It's as if Mark wants us to recognize that prayer is part of the actions of Jesus, that in the midst of the movement and the direction and where Jesus leads us, prayer is not just a part of it, it is a crucial part of it. In fact, if you were to look at the Gospel of Mark, there are three instances, only three, where Mark gives us a glimpse into Jesus praying. Now, a couple of things. One, we get a lot of verses and a lot of examples of how Jesus taught prayer, talked about prayer, but only three in the Gospel of Mark where he actually went and prayed himself. Now, I am positive that Jesus prayed a whole lot more than just three times in his entire life, but Mark is highlighting these three, and the placement of them is brilliant for the Gospel writer Mark. There's three places, Mark 1, Mark 6, Mark 14. Let me give you some context. Mark 1, right before Jesus begins his ministry and begins to preach, he went off and prayed. Mark 14, let me bounce to the end, Mark 14 is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he is arrested and then crucified. And then we have Mark 6, right here in the middle, with all the intensity and all the chaos and all that he's dealing with. Do you see that? The beginning, the end, and right smack in the middle. It's almost as if the writer here wants us to know prayer has to be part of every beginning, middle, and end. It's not just a one-time thing. So what we're gonna do is we are gonna hover around that one sentence just for the rest of our time because we can all have our own headlines. Like what we read through here, we could do that with our lives. Well, this happened on Monday and then this happened on Wednesday and then we had to go over here and then we dealt with this and now we're here. Like that's our lives, Right? It is intense, it can be crazy, it can be busy, it can be exhausting. And as we go through all of these, we're gonna focus on that one sentence and here's why. One commentary wrote it like this and they said it perfectly. Regarding the, the prayer sentence that we just read out of Mark chapter six, this, this author wrote, after intense times of ministry with and for others, it is often important to spend time alone with God the Father in prayer. The crowds will demand more and more. God simply enjoys fellowship with his child. Man, did you hear that? Their interpretation of this section of Mark 6 is that God just loves spending time with you in the midst of the chaos and intensity. He just wants to be with his children. Jesus draws strength from this time with his heavenly father, both refreshing him and preparing him. Those two words are important, refreshing and preparing him for his next phase of ministry to both his disciples and the crowds. So that's why we want to hover here. This one sentence that Jesus, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Now, I would imagine if, if I were to say, uh, well, let's just do this. Let's, let me just check something. If you believe that prayer is an important part of your faith, would you please raise your hand? I'm not shocked at all. That's exactly how I thought it would go, right? Yes, of course, we would all say that. But if I could lean in, and that's what I want us to do here, if we could lean in just a little bit like, but is it really? Like we know it's an important part. We know it's a crucial part. We know it's a vital part. And, and maybe you would even say, man, I pray, before, I pray before I get up and I pray over dinners and we pray before bed. And, and I have a, maybe you would even be able to say like, man, here's the prayer life that I have pieced together. But I think there's some elements of prayer that Jesus teaches us that we probably miss out on or we just neglect. So that's where I want us to, to kind of focus in on. Here's how we're gonna do this. This is helpful. This is a helpful Bible study technique and then we're actually gonna model this today. Um, when you're reading a short section of scripture, right, one sentence, one of the things that is helpful to do in your own Bible study is to emphasize each of the different words in that sentence. So for example, if we were to say this sentence, Brian went to church today, 
if we did that sentence, a way to study that sentence is to emphasize the different words differently. So Brian went to church today. 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 You see how that kind of changes what you focus on? So we're gonna do that with this passage. It's one sentence. There's four sections we are gonna emphasize and we are gonna work backwards. So follow with me. Um, this might be helpful. I hope one of these kind of speaks to you. If we were to emphasize the last part, we would read it as, he, Jesus, went up into the hills by himself to pray, specifically to pray. And the reason we emphasize that and we highlight that is because understand Jesus didn't go away by himself into the hills to take a break to catch his breath, to just recharge by himself for a second, to just have a minute. Now, earlier, when he told the disciples, let's get in the boat, we haven't been able to eat, people have been coming and going, we need to go over there and rest. The word there was rest, the word here is not rest. This is not Jesus just like, I tried to get rest earlier and now I can finally get to it. This is a totally different intentionality, a totally different purpose. We have rest and then we have prayer. We absolutely need both. But here, Jesus is not saying they're the same thing. In fact, he tried to get rest, didn't get rest, and as far as we know, skipped it and went straight into prayer. It was very intentional. It was very purposeful. And oftentimes we can view, I just need some time away. Man, I would challenge that a little bit. Yes, absolutely, that's important. But Jesus prioritized prayer over rest even. He prioritized his time with God over just time away. So by all means, self-care is important. But according to Jesus, prayer is even more important. Now, what I love about what we read here is there's no examples, there's no description, there's no insider details on what Jesus prayed. And in fact, I, in conversations I've had with other people, a lot of people tend to shy away from prayer because like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And because we don't have all these like specifics and details, we, we back away from it. So let me help you with that. Here we're told that Jesus prayed. Other places were given more details on his prayers, but here it's very generic. So let me give you some categories to maybe think of if this kind of hits you. Like, man, I just need to lean into my prayer life a little bit more. Four categories that prayer can fit in. It doesn't have to fit in all of these. Prayer's very broad. Four categories that may be helpful. Prayer includes, but not limited to, there's my disclaimer, asking, telling, listening, and sitting. Asking, telling, listening, and sitting. The first two are very obvious. We tend to think of those first. Asking. God, I need wisdom, so I'm gonna ask for wisdom. God, I'm gonna ask for direction. God, I'm gonna ask for clarity. God, I'm gonna ask for provision. I'm gonna ask for forgiveness. We tend to ask God for things, and we absolutely should do that, we ask. Telling, also pretty obvious. God, I'm gonna tell you some of my needs. Here's what I need, which then follows up by an ask. Sometimes we tell him just what's going on. We have a relationship with him, so we tell him what's going on in our life, and we tell him the intensity of our current season, and we tell him what, what is frustrating us. We just tell him. Confession is part of that. Lord, I just need to confess. I need to tell you where I've messed up so that you can continue to, to not just give me grace and forgiveness, but you can also change in me. You can, you can change me from the inside out. So we tell him. We tend to think of those too. Listening, though, is part of prayer. Now, am I talking about hearing the audible voice of God? Not necessarily. What we are doing right now could classify under prayer as listening because we are opening God's word and we are listening to his words. We're told that all scripture is God breathed. So when we're listening to his word, we are truly listening to him. There's also the idea of listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. 
That's a whole other topic. We actually talked about this, uh, man, maybe a month or so ago, where the more time we're with him, the more he begins to direct us. If you got questions on what that means, because that's a big question, big topic, happy to do that outside of that. That's a whole other sermon, though. But we listen to his word. We listen to the promptings or the convictions or the leading of his spirit that dwells in us. So we listen. This last one we always forget, to sit with God. Sitting with God is prayer. And you're not asking and you're not telling. You're not even necessarily listening. You're just thinking of him. And you sit with him. When Becky and I, my wife and I, when we first started dating, even into maybe the first year or two of our marriage, uh, if you didn't know this, uh, I'm the extrovert in our relationship. She is the introvert in our relationship. And anytime we would go on dates, I mean, from the car ride to the restaurant, man, I had questions ready to go. And these, and, and these were fun for me. I'm like, all right, we're in the car, date night, date night questions. We're only gonna talk about fun things. So I'd ask questions like, if you became the president of the United States, what's the first thing that you would do? And she'd be like, uh, pass. I'm like, okay, um, what is your favorite childhood memory? And she's like, uh, I don't know, I have to think about it. I mean, I just had like all these questions ready to go and I was firing them off because I loved her and I wanted to hear from her. And we got married and about, again, a year or two in, we were on a date night and man, I just had all these questions. I hadn't even written them down. I'm like so excited to hear from her. And she finally said like, Brian, stop. No more 20 questions. Because we actually started, I named, oh, let's do 20 questions for date night. And she's like, no more 20 questions. No, you're interrogating me. That's how it feels. We're married. I said, yes, stop asking questions. <laughs> and at first I was a little hurt. I was like, but I want to hear from you and I want to ask you questions. I want to learn about you. And she's like, that's fine, but this is too much. Let's just be together. And I'll tell you, we've been married over 15 years and it has taken 15 years for me to learn to love to just sit with my wife. We just sit and we're okay with the quiet and we're okay with the silence and we're okay not having to fill the space with something. At least I am to a point. She's better at it than me. I got three minutes and I've got to say something, but <laughs> I'm learning. But we can just sit together. Sometimes we just need to sit with him that is part of prayer. All right, let's emphasize the, the next word here. Again, he, Jesus, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Can you pray in groups? Absolutely. Should you pray in community? Absolutely. That's a big part of what we do on, on Sunday mornings. Pray with your spouse. Oh my goodness, couples, that's probably the most important thing that you could do as a married couple is to pray with each other. Not just for each other, but with each other. So yes, pray in community and pray with others and pray with your kids and pray at church and pray with others. Yes, but don't neglect your alone time with God. And here's why, here's why. I have found, maybe this is just me, but I have found that I am more honest with God when no one else is praying with me. I'm more transparent with him. I'm more authentic with him. I sit with him so much better when it's just me and him. And what happens in your relationship with God, when you focus on an alone prayer time with God, your relationship with him becomes even more intimate. It becomes deeper. It becomes more authentic. And even your prioritization of prayer increases. Because like Jesus, remember what Jesus had to do? He insisted, he immediately insisted his disciples go away. And then he had to say goodbye to everybody else. Jesus had to tell people no. Jesus had to send people away so that he could prioritize alone time with God. And so when we, when we do that, we are prioritizing God over anything and everyone else. That's meaningful and it deepens our relationship. Yes, pray with other people, but don't neglect alone time in your prayers with God. We'll go to the next part. 
Jesus, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. The environment seemed to matter to Jesus. He seemed to care greatly about the environment. And in fact, if you study scripture, you see that environment, especially, specifically the word like mountain, hills, wilderness, it is all over scripture, Old and New Testament. Environments matter and they are impactful. We know this though, right? Because we know that environments can either create distractions or limit distractions. We know that based on our environment, it either promotes focus or hinders focus. So when we wanna get something done, adults, you do this, right? We wanna get something done, what do we do? Kids, I need you to leave me alone for a second. I'm gonna be in my office, the door's gonna be shut, I'm gonna turn off the TV, I'm gonna turn off the music, and I need to focus for a few minutes. Parents, we do this with our kids. It's homework time. Take out your headphones, put the phone down, put the iPad down, be in separate places. You cannot be next to each other. We're gonna lock the dog up, we're gonna shut the blinds, we're gonna turn everything off so you can focus on your homework. If we don't, it's gonna take us hours versus 30 minutes. We know that our environments matter. So when we talk about going in, when Jesus goes into the hills, for him it was very literal. For us, it doesn't have to be literal. You don't actually have to go to the North Georgia mountains. You can, but you need a place that is quiet and that has solitude. I have my hills, if you will. It is not Panera Bread. You will see me at Panera all the time, and that is not a place where I can have quiet and hide away. Everybody knows I'm there. But what I have to do is I have to schedule it. So, and I'm not gonna tell you any of the details because the whole point is none of you know where it's at. So it is one day a week, one day a week at the same time, on the same day, every week, I have it in my calendar, I have it on my schedule, and I go to my hills. And it is a place that is quiet, it is kind of dark, weather doesn't matter, it's inside a building, and no one will know where I'm at, except my wife. And that's where I have my moment like this. And if I don't schedule it, it doesn't happen, because there's always something else that wants to come up. Which leads us into the last part, which technically is the first part in the passage. He went up into the hills by himself to pray. He went. He went. See, I think oftentimes we can have a great plan. We can have great intentions. We can have great ideas. We can have all the things ready to go. And then something else pops up and we never go. We never follow through. It begins with, no, Jesus actually did this. He needed it. He planned for it. He knew where he was gonna go, the purpose to pray, but he actually followed through. He actually went, and I think this is where we probably struggle the most. I know I need to pray, and I need to just sit with God, and I need to ask and tell and listen. I know I need that time by myself, and so I'm gonna try to schedule that. I need to go to a place that is a little bit more solitude, and it's quiet, and maybe a little darker where I can focus, and I, and I know I need all that, and I even plan for that. Oh, but it doesn't take much for us to not follow through. The follow through is important. In a lot of aspects of life, you do not have to be a golfer to understand this part, right? The goal of golf, maybe you would come up with something different. For me, it's to hit the ball. That's the goal. If you don't hit the ball, no chance of it ever actually going into the hole. The goal is to actually hit the ball. And I don't know if you do play golf, if you've ever played with somebody like this where they come up, because there's a lot of things you have to think about before your swing, right? You've got to get your stance right, you get the ball, head down, shoulders square, everything, your grip needs to be right. And if you're not careful, then you'll play with somebody like this where you're like, <sighs> 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 right? You're like, hit the ball already. Like, let's, let's move on. You can only prep for so much. At some point, you have to come up, you gotta swing, you just gotta hit the ball. And I think for most of us, if we're honest, we're still 
nah, I just got to get it right. I just got to, I mean, in my head, focus, what am I supposed to do? And you're like, just, just do it. Jesus is showing us what it looks like to follow through. He went. You know what Jesus did afterwards? Again, we said this is right smack in the middle of what we would maybe call an intense season. Here's what he does afterwards. If you keep reading, you'll see that he notices that his disciples are in trouble again with another storm, a little bit of a bless your heart moment. They still don't get it. He goes out to them in a very unique way. You gotta read it on your own. But then we're gonna read this. Verse 53. Once Jesus got back in the boat with them, after they crossed the lake, they landed at Genereset. They brought the boat to shore and climbed out. The people recognized Jesus at once and they ran throughout the whole area carrying sick people on mats to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he went in villages, cities, or the countryside, they brought the sick out to, market, out, out to the marketplaces. They begged him to let the sick touch at least a fringe of his robe and all who touched him were healed. He jumped right back into it. All the intensity. One sentence where he went away into the hills by himself to pray. And then he jumped right back into it again. He didn't escape. He didn't stay up in the hills. He jumped back into it. Man, we need that. We need that. We're gonna deal with chaos and intensities and grief and sorrow and conflict and tensions and difficulties and everything in between. We need what Jesus did. We need to do what Jesus did. To go by ourselves into the hills and pray. Because prayer refreshes us, it renews us, and it changes us. It's not just about asking and telling. It's about sitting and letting him minister to our hearts and to our souls and to prepare us for what is next. I wanna point out one last thing. In Exodus chapter 34, it's a story of Moses. If you know anything about Moses, God called him to go and rescue, deliver the Israelites out of the oppression of the Egyptians and now they're wandering around in the wilderness. There's that one again. And Moses had a very unique relationship with God. He spent a lot of time with God. And I wanna read a passage, short passage, of one of these moments that Moses spent with God in prayer. Verse 29 out of Exodus 34. When Moses came down Mount Sinai carrying the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, that's like what we would call the 10 commandments, but that's not the point of this passage. Moses wasn't aware that his face had become radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. He was glowing because of his time with God and he didn't recognize it, but everybody else did. Are you glowing? Do you glow because of your time with God? Do you glow because of your relationship with God? Do other people notice? They look at you like, I don't know what it is. I can't put my finger on, but what happened? Like there's something with you. What is that? And you're like, I just, I spend time with my God. What do you talk about? What does he tell you? What does he do for you? Sometimes I just sit with him. I just sit with him. May we be a people that glow because we spend time with our Heavenly Father. Up until this point, we've just talked a lot. I've, well, I've talked a lot, you've listened a lot. I'm gonna have us do something together. This is gonna stretch some of you. Some of you are gonna love this. Some of you, it's gonna be a little bit of a stretch. Um, either way, it's only gonna last about 30 seconds, so you can do it. Here's what I'm gonna put up here. I'm gonna put up some prayer prompts. These mirror, these match what we talked about earlier, kind of the four categories of prayer. What do you need to ask God? Spend some time asking God. What do you want to tell God? Again, that could be adoration, how great he is, or that could be something that you need to tell him about your current season or maybe confession. What are you hearing from God? Let me explain. That's not um, listening for the voice of God. Here's how I would encourage you to think through that. What from what we read or talked about today stood out to you? 
Oh man, when we were talking about the follow through piece, oh, that just hit me. That's God speaking to you. Pay attention to what stands out to you. So what are you hearing from God? And lastly, what will you reflect on as you sit with God? You're not asking, you're not telling, you're not even listening. You're just reflecting on who he is. Now we're gonna practice this and we're gonna try to do this like Jesus modeled for us in silence and solitude. So we're gonna lower the lights. It's hard to do solitude with like 300 people in the same room, but maybe the lights will help with that. So we're gonna try our best to imagine being alone and we're gonna do this in silence, in the quiet. You'll notice that Jackson, our keyboard player, is not back there getting the mood right. Did you notice that? It's not because he forgot. It's because I told him not to. We usually run away from silence and we always wanna fill the space with something. We're not gonna fill the space. We're gonna sit and allow God to fill this space. We're gonna take just a few moments, spend some time praying and sitting in silence and solitude with our Heavenly Father.